Welcome to The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge, brought to you by the world's leading underground construction equipment company, Ditch Witch, proud to support the sports you love. I'm Steve Brigman, and I'm joined by the host of Bass Edge Television, Mr. Aaron Martin. How's Mr. Martin today? I am doing well. It was a rough weekend, but we'll get into that a little later because we have veteran pro George Cochran on standby, and a little later, Bob Lusk will be joining us to discuss aquatic plants. Oh, it sounds like a great show. Let's get it on. Get it like that one, boy. Good job. I don't know of any other sport that offers the challenge with bass fishing day. Oh, did, did you see yes, that? Yes, I saw that. That was awesome. <laughs> Watch for the fish to pace the bait. What do you think of that, huh? Yeah. There's full contact fishing right Man. there. You're listening to The Edge, the official audio program of Bass Edge. Aaron, here we are. It's uh, the week after Memorial Day. I guess it's unofficially summer now. Did you have a good Memorial Day? I did have a good Memorial Day. It was uh, a fun time, and you're going to get a kick out of this, Steve, because you know we originally were going to take horses on our trip because we were staying out in the Mark Twain National Forest down on the Berryman Trail, which is really out in the middle of nowhere, and instead we opted to take the mountain bikes. Now, I've got to tell you that these trails are meant more for a horse than what they are a mountain bike, and uh, I'm I'm walking a little slower than what I was on Friday. I tested a few new muscles, did you? Oh, more than a few, I can tell you that. <laughs> I I can promise you one thing: they're muscles that I don't normally use to stand on the front deck of a bass boat. <laughs> well, that sounds fun. I know you guys had a good time. I, I hope you're able to dodge the rain. It rained here mostly, but we need the rain, and we're glad to have it. You know, it feels good. It's getting summertime, and you know, for me, that kind of means the start of night fishing. You. You know, uh, we've talked about it. It's just something I truly enjoy doing. Well, it, it does, and, and that's really, you know, kind of how I grew up uh, and cut my teeth into the sport of, of bass fishing uh, beyond just fishing the, you know, the local ponds and streams and that, but was really uh, just going to the lake and, and going night fishing with my dad and uh, some of his friends. And that is just such a, a time to where I think it, it just... You know, not having that that visibility kind of taking away that sight factor, just the anticipation, you know, when you're fishing, whether it be in shallow or fishing some of that deeper brush, uh, it can really be a lot of fun. Well, it can be. And, uh, of course, one of the things you hear a lot of anglers say, and I want to get your take on this because I know you do a lot of night fishing, but uh, folks will tell you, you catch bigger fish at night. Do you believe that's true? Yes and no. I I still think that opportunity is there. I think they're a little easier to target uh, at night because of the fact that... That, you know, in, in high traffic lakes where, say, take, for instance, like uh, a lake like Lake of the Ozarks or something like that to where you have an immense amount of boat traffic, um, I do believe that, you know, those bigger fish feeding at night uh, just have the kind of that sense of security. They know when the boats are going to basically go back to the dock and be put on the trailer, and mm-hmm. I think it's just no different than any other wildlife that we're talking about, whether it be turkeys or deer or anything else. You know, you're kind of in their living room, and they know what's going on. Of course, through the years, I've heard a number of theories and, and comments about this, and, and, and one that I always found interesting is this idea that 
some fish just evolve hunting at night. And because, you know, they don't see the pressure of the fishermen during the day, that they just tend to grow bigger. I don't, I don't know that that's true, but that, that makes a little sense to me. It does make sense. And, and likewise, I don't have any scientific evidence, you know, to back that up. And I always kind of like to rely on, on the science of, of that. Um, but I can tell you, you know, uh, the nocturnal uh, feeding capabilities and, and always around, uh, you know, that full moon. And uh, like I said, I, I just think there's opportunities there that you otherwise don't have during the day just just based upon numerous factors, and specifically that that being the boat traffic. That's so true. But uh, but when you start fishing at night, folks who haven't done a whole lot of that, uh, there's a number of issues to deal with that are, that are quite different, and a number of those are, are safety issues. For one, your life. I mean, let's face it. When you're sitting back in the back end of a dark cove, you tend to want to turn your lights off. But in most states. Maybe every state, but I don't know that. But in most states, in my native Texas, it's against the law to turn your lights off if you have the boat on the water. And so, uh, you know, that's something you want to keep in mind. And then there's a number of, I know one thing we used to do was wear wear these clear uh, protective goggles when we ran around the lake because one bug in the eye can can ruin a whole night of fishing. Well, that's great advice. And, uh, you know, just much like this past weekend we were, when we were out camping, you know, I, I've never seen so many lightning bugs in my life. And, you know, you get out on a lake and the mosquitoes and the various types of insects that live out there, when you're running 30, 35 miles an hour, uh, which is kind of the the maximum recommended speed that I would run at night, uh, <laughs> you know, like you said, you get something in your eye, it'll take you out. It will, and it's important to take care of yourself out there. You know, another thing is I found, I like I say, most of my night fishing's been in Texas, and, and even though it's cooler at night, it's still very important to stay hydrated. It's still very warm out there, and you still need to uh, make sure you, you drink enough water. And, you know, there's also just some uh, precautions that can save you a lot of trouble on the water. You know, let's face it, uh, on most of our lakes, you can't buy fuel at 2 o'clock in the morning. Make sure you're fueled up. Uh, you tend to troll around more than run around, so uh, you know you're putting sort of a more pressure on your batteries sometimes than you might otherwise. So uh, just being prepared, and then just and bugs will drive you crazy. It's not fun if you forget your mosquito repellents. Well, that, that's for sure. And you know, of course, we're a little early into the the situation, but your comment as far as remaining hydrated, you know, as the the year gets later, a lot of people don't realize that you can actually become overheated at night. And I'll never forget, I was fishing uh, one time. In in August, the humidity was terribly high, and you're just soaking wet. You know, you make a cast, and I mean, you're just dripping with sweat. One tip that I always had was you can buy these little kind of like bandanas that you can throw in your cooler, and basically when they're exposed to ice water, uh, they swell up and they hold uh, that coolness, and you can wrap that around your neck. You know, tips like that. Another thing is that the reason why I like night fishing is because of, you know, the visibility of lines. So typically, I'll go up to, and that's when I kind of bring out that big monofilament, especially if I'm fishing, you know, a brush uh, but you can use that that black light you know that you take those suction cups and put on the side mm-hmm. of your boat and it causes that uh, monofilament so it helps aid you a little bit as far as the angler um, because when you're casting around a lot of docks and some things like that that is kind of nice to be able to to see that line and also not rely solely upon just the feel because i am a line watcher during the day and that's hard to really kind of make that shift over tonight uh, to mm-hmm. where you can't see that line boy i think that's so neat fishing with those lines too it takes a little a uh, minute to kind of get used to but then you realize wow this is the only way to go you know you mentioned uh, that you used to fish with your dad at night on, on lake of the ozone 
Ozarks, and uh, I just thought we'd mention uh, we got Father's Day coming up, not too awfully far away. Yeah, that is right around the corner, and uh, I think it's a good opportunity, you know, just to be cognizant. Now's the time to kind of plan that trip. You know, certainly I grew up being able to uh, fish with my dad and certainly would not trade that now that he's gone for anything in the world. And, you know, I encourage everybody to uh, take the time, get out there, and and if you don't have kids or uh, if your dad's not still living, find somebody else because you can certainly still enjoy that uh, those same qualities with somebody else. Oh, that's just so true. I mean, you can just touch somebody's life so personally by just introducing them to fishing, hunting, camping, anything in the outdoors. You know, speaking of kind of summertime night fishing, uh, we've got George on standby. Man, I, I can't wait to hear this interview. George uh, is one of the top anglers in the business. Let's just take a quick break and listen to George Cochran. You've got the truck. You've got the toys. Now it's time to get the hitch that gives you more time to play with both. It's the tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. You want options? Select the ball size, adjust the height to level the trailer, or stow it out of the way in just seconds. It's 10,000 tow and pounds worth of durability, convenience, and the latest technology that has made B&W famous. The tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. Call 1-866-BEST-HITCH. Welcome back to The Edge, brought to you in part by Ditch Witches On, establishing a new standard in trencher power and versatility. As anglers, we are drawn to the challenges of the sport. Confronting changing conditions test our abilities both physically and mentally. With us today is a veteran angler whose achievements speak for themselves. He has spent 30 years as a professional angler, a member of the Bass Fishing Hall of Fame with over $2 million in career earnings and championship victories on both major tours. It is none other than George Cochran. George, welcome to The Edge. Well, thank you, Aaron, for having me. I know there's a a lot of things has changed in fishing in the last 30 years we're going to talk about. Boy, that is for sure. And, you know, speaking of that, it has changed over the years. And can you highlight really kind of some of those major differences that, that you've been able to witness and, and really be a part of over your career? Well, one of the biggest things that I've noticed in the last five years is that our electronics, the GPS and electronics, you don't have to buy maps anymore. You just punch in the lake when you when you get to a lake and it shows you a, a completely detailed map right in front of you like a television screen. And the lures we use now are nothing like it used to. It used to be everything was pretty simple, you know. It was spinnerbaits, jigs, worms, but now it's, just uh, amazing to me how many different techniques there is that we use to catch fish on these clear lakes as well as all these other lakes. I mean, it's just changed tremendously in the last five years. Well, and I know just speaking from the standpoint of of what you talked about concerning the GPS, um, you know, I was kind of from the school to where before GPSs came about, we had to kind of use landmarks as a cross-reference, and that really kind of put fishing spots or those honey holes at uh, at a little bit further arm's reach than what it is today. Yeah, you're correct on that completely. And, you know, I'm basically a shallow-water fisherman, but I fish more structure now than ever because I don't have to worry about if I if I'm fishing offshore and I start catching some fish on a drop or a hump or something I just see on the depth finder, 
and I start catching fish, I just punch it in, and, and I can go right back to the same spot, I mean, within feet. And, you know, there was no such thing like that 10, 15 years ago. And uh, if you notice these tournaments now, it takes a lot more weight now than it ever did back 10, 15, 20 years ago. And the main reason is because the GPS, the electronics we have, the the lures that we use now are so much better than what they was years ago. Uh, you know, there's just a combination of reasons why the, uh, I think that the pro seems to catch more fish and bigger fish now than ever before. Well, and, and going to kind of the grassroots level of, of our sport, do we tend to overcomplicate it? I mean, because back in the day, what you speak of with things being simple, um, obviously you had success on the water then. Well, you, you did, and and I can remember back 15, 20 years ago, you know, uh, spinnerbait, there was just four or five lures that won most of the tournaments. And now, you know, I can name 25 different kind of lures that are winning tournaments. I mean, it's a broader outlook on, on the whole sport, which makes it better, I think. And uh, it opens, in like used to, everybody was fishing the banks or islands or something visible, like you were talking about earlier. Now, when you have a full field in a tournament, 100 to 150 pros, everybody's kind of spread out, even though sometimes a couple of pros find the same spot. But, it, you know, there's just as many people fishing offshore structure now, probably as many, as they are people trying to catch fish shallow. Well, and Steve and I kind of have this ongoing debate here on the edge, and, uh, you know, I would love to get your opinion. But it, it's concerning if it's easier to catch a bass now versus 20 years ago. And I know there's a lot of factors that go into that, but give us kind of your, your thoughts on that. 20 years ago, I think there wasn't as much pressure on the lake as there is now. I mean, you could go to lakes, and on weekends you'd see quite a few boats, but nothing like you see now. You know, there's a lot of tournaments every weekend all over the lakes, and a lot of people, you know, the bass fishing has gotten so big, everybody loves to do it. And, and every lake that I go to all year long that we have tournaments, and I fish 11 national tournaments a year, and it doesn't matter if I'm in Virginia, Minnesota, Florida. It's a lot of people bass fishing. But the knowledge we have, the electronics we have, these new lures we have, and you can watch these TV shows now, and it seems like every year there's new lures that come out that, that are fooling the fish, and they last several years, a couple of years, and then here comes something else new. It's constantly like that. And, you know, there's not a year goes by that there's not a new lure that's like a secret that comes out and everybody's catching fish on it. But one thing I've noticed that on most of the lakes we fish, more finesse fishing is the thing now because of so many boats and so much pressure it seems to take lighter line more finesse lures you know than it used to well that's a good point you know and and speaking of kind of the popularity and also just the growth of the sport of fishing you know our sport is a little different than than most uh, others that are out there on how we choose to participate, kind of uh, recreate in the outdoors. But as successful anglers, we really don't have to rely 
per se on strength or speed, uh, much like other sports. Can you offer advice on how we can make the most of our days on the water, you know, kind of throwing that out the window? Well, I'll tell you what I do in some of the other pros. You know, I've been doing this for 30-something years. When I practice for a tournament, it doesn't do you any good to run all over the lake. I'll pick one section of the lake, and I'll spend one whole day in that section of the lake looking for fish, and I spend more time on the trolling motor than I do running from point to point. In other words, I'll pick, let's just say, there's a creek on the lake called Cedar Creek, and it's a big creek on the lake. And to fish it right, I'll spend one whole day in there. I'll fish the points, the pockets, the flat banks, the deep banks, I'll try different lures, and at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I'll spend very few times while I'll crank my big motor all day long. I'll spend all my time on the trolling motor, and at the end of the day, when I get through practicing, I'll have usually, I'll know what kind of banks, what kind of structure the fish are on, what if they're on the bottom, if they're suspended or they're biting on top water. At the end of the day, I've got a great idea what's going on in the lake. So the next day, I'll look at my maps and or look at my GPS in the boat, and I'll see other areas that look like where I need to go. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. So what you're saying is you'll completely saturate and and try different options, give different presentations, different depths, and then based upon that feedback and the information that you gather at the end of that day, you can then kind of open up the doors on the rest of the water that you're the body of water that you're fishing and look to duplicate the patterns, thus getting you away from just fishing a particular spot. Right. That's exactly like if I if I'm in this creek and I find that they're in real shallow flat bays and pockets then that's what I'll concentrate on in different areas of the lake and looking for parts of the lake that have those flat bays and spawning bays or flat cover. And then, you know, and then a lot of times it might be creek channels or it might be long extended points that come out on the lake. But what I'll do, I'll spend most of the day fishing in that one area to figure that out because any time I've ever run, here, fish a while, here, fish a while, and burn, say, over a half a tank or a tank a day, I usually don't learn a lot. I learn a lot by spending all day fishing with the trolling motor, not the big motor. Well, that's great advice, you know, and, and George, here we are really at the end of the May, end of May, 1st of June, and no question, you love the summer and understand bass behavior this time of year. What do we need to be looking for uh, when we're hitting the water, you know, here kind of entering into the summer months? Okay, that's a good question, and a lot of people have a, have a lot of problems with that because they don't know where to start or what lures to use. And I've kept records over 20-something years, and usually in May and June the fish have spawned. There's still quite a few fish shallow in the areas where they spawn, but most of them are moving out towards the points of the lake, they're moving out on the main lake, and usually this time of year, top waters start to be very good early in the morning around the banks and on shallow points. And then after that, they don't seem to be real deep on structure yet, but they seem to be in the middle of the day 10, 15 foot deep on the points or on the creek channel banks in a creek. They'll be right on the shallow 
drop-offs, everything's starting to lead up to a summer pattern. And starting about this time of year, I usually fish topwaters early, and then I'll use some kind of plastic worms during the day. And the colors are very important. Usually early in the year, they like the greens, the watermelons, you know, the natural colors. And starting in this time of year, the reds, your purples, your metal flake worms start being what they really want. So that's a key thing for the people out there to, to uh, narrow their tackle down to that particular type of lures and you'll be successful. And is that because of, of the brim and just what they're feeding on that, that you're making kind of that transition to the reds and, and the, the purples and that? Right. That's, well, that's what happens this time of year. You know, instead of the, the natural colors, you know, from the winter months and early spring, this time of year, your brims, your shad get brighter, more prettier colors, I'd like to say. And the fish seem to, to that's what they're looking for. And that's a key thing in bass fishing is matching up the colors and the type lures that you need to use this time of year. And, and plastic worms, uh, there's all kinds of uh, plastic worms. That, the worms that have, instead of using straight tail worms, like your finesse worms and your trick worms, and you seem to want your, like, your 7-, 8-inch worms that have curly tails that have a lot more action because the water's warmer and they're looking for more of a snake-type action when it falls. A lot of action in the worm now. You know, current can be both friend and foe depending upon the season. What impact does current have this time of year, George? It has a big impact. Uh, One of the things that most of the pros do this time of year, when we go to a reservoir where they generate, we want to know exactly what time they start generating because that's the time of the day that they pull up on structure or they start feeding off on on deeper structure or on the points or anywhere that the current, because that that really dictates where the fish are going to be. Now, if I was fishing a natural lake where they're not generating, the biggest thing that helps us is wind dictates where the fish are going to be, just like current does. If I have a strong, say, west wind, then I want to fish really in the areas where the wind's blowing in on the banks, in on the points, or because it, what it does, it makes the fish come up shallow and feed because it pushes the minnows, the bait fish, the shad up shallow, and they can't see as good and they're easier to catch. And if it's current in a lake, then you know that you might be fishing a topwater early that morning on points and you catch a few and then all of a sudden they turn the current on and fish start coming up schooling that they wasn't even doing before because the current makes everything, it just like turns them on. And that's what you look for as a pro. You look for those key times, either current or wind, that tell you that that's the time you need to be on these areas where the fish are because you know they're feeding. Well, what about, you know, here we are at, at the time of year when pleasure boat traffic is, is quickly on the rise, and, and that's all I'm going to say about that because I'm sure all of us have differing opinions, but what are the effects of this, and does that kind of come into play with our earlier conversation on current and the adjustments that we need to make there? 
Well, yes, you know, it's it's a good question. I won a FLW championship on Lake Hamilton in Hot Springs, and it is nothing but a huge resort like houses all the way around it, boat houses. And after about 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock in the morning, it's just traffic everywhere. And most people quit fishing because it's it's really hard to move around or to fish in a lot of waves and everything. But the fish get used to it. They really do. They Now, they do bite better early in the morning before the traffic, you know, like on your top waters and stuff like that. But what happens with all that boat traffic, it's like putting current in the water. Those fish will still bite during the day, but it seems like they don't bite around the banks as much. They bite on structure because of all the boat traffic puts current and it's got everything and I don't catch them shallow in a lot of boat traffic lakes. I catch them more on structure, like on points or drop off, or on bluffs where the wind, where the waves are crashing in. And bass, when they feed, they'll move in on those deep banks to feed on the crawdads and the shad that are pushed up, and they ambush them. Great information, George. Unfortunately, I need to uh, send us out to break, but before I do. I just want to wish you uh, luck in the rest of your season, and thanks for being a part of The Edge. Well, thank you for having me on The Edge, Aaron, and I look forward to seeing you on the lake someday. Power. Productivity. Speed. It's the best trencher ever made, not to mention the best plow. Dumper. Tiller, backhoe, stump grinder, and tool carrier ever made. The Zahn, the revolution, is here. Now you can harness the full power of your boat electronics and catch more fish. Introducing Electronics 101. Whether a beginner or more advanced, leading electronics instructor Mike Webb shows you how to get the most out of any sonar unit. Common problems and frequently asked questions are covered in detail. Electronics 101 also includes bonus deep fishing tips from industry pros. Master any brand graph. Order your DVD by calling 888-390-8780 or online at BassEdge.com. Hi, Ingers. This is David Fritz. This is Guido Hibnan. Hi, I'm James Niggemeyer. This is Terry Bolton. Hi, I'm Jamie Seifert. I'm Pam Martin-Wells, and you're on the edge. Man, Aaron, it's great to hear George talking about summer fishing. It's that time of year. I, I love it, not just because of the night fishing like we talked before, but it's the time of year we employ some of my favorite techniques, you know, buzz baits, frogs, and, and other top waters. Just a fun time of year to fish. Well, it is, and I think that's what really why George likes it so much. You know, that's one of his strengths, and of course, dating back to when he won the FLW championship there on Lake Hamilton. You know, that is a lake that it really has a tremendous amount of recreational <laughs> boaters out on it, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, he did something kind of uh, against the grain, I would say, uh, when he won that, and that was basically targeting shallow fish. And um, you know, that that brings up an interesting topic when you think about it, because most of us think that you know the the bass. All all the bass move off into the depths. Well, that is so true. And I think in some places, especially where we've got a, a large Florida bass population and, and frankly, shallow lakes, you know, you're going to find a lot of fish shallow. And I think typically that's going to be around vegetation. Yeah. And, and vegetation really plays such a vital role this time of year for numerous factors because of the just the, the security, you know, the oxygen that it puts back into the water, kind of that overhead canopy. But 
I still remember some of the the trips that we had last year, Steve, with you know throwing that frog even in the heat of the day, and it wasn't even at night. You know mm-hmm. how they would come up through that canopy, and it just goes to show you, you know what George brought up. You check the shallows first. And then if they're not biting there, you can always move out deeper. Boy, that's so true. And we saw that we saw that on a couple of our shows, like Sam Rayburn and Ingwood Dona last year. You know, summer is a, just a great time to fish. It's a great time to be out in the water. But uh, but there's some hazards out there, and one of those is the sun. And you know, Aaron, there's a there's a bill floating around Congress now where they're talking about putting some more regulation on the way that. Uh, sunscreen companies label their products. And one of the issues there is that companies are calling their products waterproof and sweatproof. And I'll tell you what, you just cannot trust that. You need to reapply sunscreen every two or three hours and take care of that despite what some claims may be. Skin care to me is nothing to mess around with, Steve. And, you know, that's really why I've switched to kind of when I go fishing on the, on the jerseys, long sleeve. And you can't imagine, I, of course, I wear a t-shirt under that, but that fabric is perforated. It's kind of that performance fabric to let air go mm-hmm. through. But the difference from where my t-shirt under that, you know, stops right above my elbow, I will still get sunburned you know, under that if I don't apply sunscreen. The other thing is, think about, you know, your hands. My hands is something that I have a lot of problems with because obviously you're always hanging on to the Mm -hmm. reel. It's always pointing up, you know, the tops of your feet. For those of us who wear sandals, your nose, under your eyes. And I just really believe that if we could adopt maybe, uh, you know, wearing some of that, because now they have that SPF um, clothing, and then use the sunscreen in addition to that for areas that we can't, you know, quite cover up. Because I'm telling you, years down the road, you know, you talk to some of these veterans, they will tell you, man, it has a tremendous effect on their skin and, uh, you know, cancerous. Well, there's over a million new cases of skin cancer in this country every year. And who is more susceptible to uh, people like yourself and, and, and some of the top pros who are out in the sun all the time and then people that just fish all the time. So it's a very serious issue that should be well taken care of. Yeah, I don't think you can take anything for granted. And, and great if you, if you like to be dark-complected and, and have a little of that. But, uh, man, I'm, t- I'm telling you. Don't abuse your skin because you will live to regret it. Well, they can use that spray on stuff like you use. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Oh, here we go again. Yeah. Uh, No, I'm more uh, into the axle grease. You know, I put it on so thick that uh, uh, it looks like I just took a bath in the stuff. You know, speaking of me having to correct you and what kind of sunscreen I use, Steve, I do want to bring up last week, you know, we got uh, into talking about the question concerning the line, if you remember uh, right. And it was such a great question, but I misquoted. I got so interested in what we were talking about compared to the braided line in the fluorocarbon that on the second part of the question uh, I actually stated that a braid uh, sinks and what I meant to be talking about there or referencing was fluorocarbon so I just want to throw that out there because earlier I had said that braid floats works great on top water and then when I made the transition I forgot to restate that I was actually talking about fluorocarbon me and Aaron I know what you mean about getting uh, into the conversation uh, I, it went right over my head I missed it but uh, let's take a quick break here and let's get back and talk to the pond ball. Bob You know the importance of protecting your investments. So why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. Keel Guard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. 
So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. Keel Guard Keel Protectors. Hi, I'm Moses Mokuahi. I'm Sean Hernke. Hi, I'm Jared Littner. I'm Travis Ruling, and you're listening to Bass Edges, The Edge. You know, as anglers, we often depend on a lot of things when it comes to the success of our fishing. Cover, aquatic vegetation, weather, so many things depend upon that. And here to help us kind of sort through that, and specifically talking about aquatic plants, is fisheries biologist and editor of Pond Boss, Mr. Bob Lusk. Bob, welcome to The Edge. Well, hey, Aaron. Great to talk to you again, buddy. How are things in your part of the planet? They are doing well. And what I am hoping, which actually I'm very confident on the fact that, you know, there seems to be a lot of misconceptions out here about aquatics. And certainly we're kind of getting into that time of year when they are growing fast and furious. And I wanted to see if you could point us in the direction and bring some clarity on the topic of aquatic vegetation. Absolutely. You bet. I tell you, when I first started my career in fisheries management, 30-something years ago, back when I was a puppy. You know, I, I, I was raised in the hatchery mode, of thinking that the best, most productive ponds and lakes on the planet were those that a fish hatchery. And in fact, they are. And you'll never find a thick twig leaf of aquatic plants at a fish hatchery. So I kind of thought in my mind at that time that you didn't need it. But I'm going to tell you, fast forward 30 years, I have yet to meet a lake or a pond that wasn't successful, that didn't have aquatic plants. I I think it's essential for a successful, healthy fishery to have have good, healthy aquatic plants. Now, I do have a few caveats with that. One is the best aquatic plant environment is a diverse amount of plants, diverse species of native plants. Uh, For example, hydrilla doesn't qualify in my mind. Hydrilla specifically, and the reason I say that is because that saying hydrilla about aquatic plants to a lot of anglers is like saying Xerox when it talks about copying things. Hydrilla is an invasive plant, and there's a handful of lakes that I know of in the United States that benefit from it ecologically and from a fishery standpoint, like uh, Amistad is one that comes to mind. Falcon is one that comes to mind, but those lakes rise and fall 70, 80 feet sometimes, and in that case, that's Hydrilla may be the best plant, but aquatic plants such as American pondweed, leafy pondweed, curly leaf pondweed, even some of the native types of milfoil, even cattails, the native plants are outstanding nurseries for little bitty fish, nurseries for insects, and some of the key components of the food chain. And uh, I I think every lake needs to have aquatic plants if possible. So it sounds to me like what you're saying, and just to back up there, because like you brought up a point there that a lot of anglers uh, may not be aware of, that hydrilla is not the silver bullet. You know, I I tell you, not only do I think that, I think oftentimes it's a smoking gun. You know, hydrilla on the surface sounds like it's a great plant because it's good edge cover. You know, it's got some density where little bitty fish can hide in it, and that does happen. But the problem with hydrilla is that it grows so fast and it's so invasive but I've seen it consume coves, big coves in lakes in less than two or three years. I mean, that stuff can grow five or six inches a day, and it reproduces by fragmentation. So when somebody runs a boat through it and chops it up, those little fragments float away and start the plants in other areas of the lake where they don't even need to be. And not only do they consume a lot of area, they consume a lot of the nutrients. Everywhere I go where I see hydrilla, the water is almost gin clear. 
And the reason is, is it's sucking that food right out of the water and taking it up in plant mass. So I, I'm, I'm an opponent of hydrilla for that matter. The reason is, the only time you see hydrilla, that's the dominant plant and oftentimes the only plant that you see. And it, in an aquatic environment, what you're looking for is, is different kinds of plants that have a different lifespan and different lifestyle. And that's one of the most successful. Some plants are dead, some are not. You know, I, I don't see hydrilla as a silver bullet at all. I see that as a problem. Well, which leads me to my next question and, and point, really, is, you know, out here fishing and visiting numerous bodies of water, you, you get a lot of dock talk. And there's a lot of people that kind of brag about, hey, you know, we, we got this started uh, in a certain lake or, you know, introducing cover, things like that. But the haphazard introduction of, you know, these type of species can actually be uh, go against exactly what we're trying to, to help. That's exactly right. You know, it, biologists call that bucket biology. You know, somebody might be well-intentioned, but you got to think about how what you do will impact that entire ecological system. You know, I mean, I, I've seen ponds and lakes in different parts of the country completely disrupted just by taking, you know, consistently taking bait fish that you buy at the bait store and releasing them in a lake where they never existed. You know, and when it comes to these aquatic plants, I think if, if guys would expend as much effort thinking about the native plants and then planting native plants, they'd be a lot better off. And, you know, in my home state of Texas where I live, if, if somebody is caught moving hydrilla, that's a crime. And there's a punishment that goes along with it. So, you know, even the Texas Parks and Wildlife, and especially the Texas Parks and Wildlife, they understand the consequences of, of making a bad ecological choice. Let's make good ecological choices, you know, some of the different pondweeds that are native. If somebody wants to plant some grass, first of all, find about find out about the laws and then find a good source of healthy plants and, and, and do it right. Work with the agency, you know, and, and, you know, it still tracks back to the fact that I've yet to meet a good trophy lake that consistently produces good quality fish that doesn't have healthy uh, stands of good aquatic plants. There has to be a better way than obviously just taking kind of the onus upon ourselves. I mean, that's what the agencies are there for. And, and certainly I would think most are going to receive us with open arms should we want to get involved as anglers and conservationists to kind of help with what they're doing. I tell you, that's exactly right. And, and, and your, your neck of the woods, uh, I was visiting with Bill Dance a couple of weeks ago, had about an hour-long conversation with them about aquatic plants. And he had been talking to, with Johnny Morris, and they're trying to put together a program to help Table Rock Lake. Because, you know, almost all the structure in Table Rock Lake is centered around drop-offs, you know, cuts, rocks, and things like that. It doesn't have a lot of aquatic plants. So they're working with the state of Missouri to try to figure out some ways to, to start growing some native plants. So I think if, if, if anglers, as well as agencies, as well as folks like, you know, Bill Dance and Johnny Morris hold hands on this project, it can turn into a real successful opportunity to improve the ecology of some of our bigger public lakes. Well, that's that's great advice and certainly a good point. Bob, I wish we had more time, but we have reached the end of our session. I always look forward, and it's always a pleasure to have you here on the edge. Uh, before we go, how can our listeners uh, get uh, more information on yourself and possibly get some questions out to you? i tell you what, the best way to get me is at www.pond.com. Click on the contact information in slide. Uh, Pondboss.com is, is just loaded. It's full of good information, and that's the best way to hang up, catch up with me. 
Well, thanks so much. Wish you the best of luck in your upcoming travels and look forward to talking with you again in the near future. It is always a pleasure, Aaron. Thanks very much. Now you can order Bass Edge Seasons 1 and 2 on DVD. Own the best resource for tips and techniques in bass fishing is host Aaron Martin tackles lakes across the country with the industry's top pro anglers, including Edwin Evers, Boyd Duckett, Alton Jones, and Pam Martin-Wells. The two sets include all 25 episodes with never-before-seen footage, over three hours of bonus pro angler interviews, bloopers, and highlights. Each two-disc set is just $19.95. Call 1-888-390-8780 or order online at BassEdge.com. that is it for today but before we get out of here we have to give something away steve do you want to do the honors oh you bet and uh, eddie from wisconsin is going to like this he's going to receive a cook's go-to tackle management system and a bass edge decal we keep the cook systems in our boat and i know eddie will enjoy that well congratulations eddie and uh, also steve uh, who do we have on deck for next week we've got clock winlet on for next week Oh, well, that's going to be a good interview. And uh, be sure to look for us on Bass Ed's television, seen three times each week on the Outdoor Channel. We can also be found on the World Fishing Network and Wild TV in Canada. Also, log on to BassEdge.com for the latest tips from top pros and a chance to win great prizes. For all of you Facebook and Twitter users out there, be sure to add us to your list. Until next time, I am Aaron Martin. And for Steve Brigman and the rest of the Bass Edge crew, we look forward to seeing you again next week right here on The Edge. This week's edition of Bass Edges, The Edge, has been brought to you by B&W Trailer Hitches, Ditch Witch, MegaWare Keel Guard, O'Reilly Auto Parts, and Legend Boats. For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com. Be sure to join us next week on The Edge.